Hey, Build listeners. My name is Meg Johnson, and I'm a multimedia marketer at OpenView. While we ramp up the next season of Build, over the next few weeks, you can enjoy a new short podcast series we've titled Building to Last. We've connected with people who have built SaaS companies through the limitations and challenges of a crisis and asked their advice on how they would advise CEOs today. By interviewing industry experts at the forefront of this battle, we look to empower founders, CEOs, and SaaS builders to stay strong and take advantage of the changing landscape of tech. And to come through this crisis, not only afloat, but thriving on the other side. This episode is hosted by OpenView's in-house expert, George Roberts. He interviews Jay Shekowat about being the founder and CEO of Field Glass during the Great Recession. Here's what they had to say. Jay, um, I mean, you and I have known each other for a, a long time, and and we met when you were the the CEO of Field Glass, and I ended up uh, joining your board for I think it was six years or so. Maybe what you could share is just a, a little bit of your your background on Field Glass, and and then we can talk about how you went through the recession, the financial recession, two thousand eight and two thousand nine, and then slide into how you're sharing that knowledge now with the CEOs on the boards you're working with in Chicago area and elsewhere. These are interesting times for sure. As I started Field Glass in the year uh, 2000, and it seems I seem to have a knack for doing these things because the financial meltdown, uh, the internet meltdown happened three months after I started the company. So that was March of 2000. And the premise of Field Glass was to solve the following problem. And what we had discovered is that uh, large organizations rely basically on two kinds of labor. Uh, the full-time labor that we think of as employees, and then they rely on everyone else, that is you know, part-time labor, uh, temporary workers, consultant services, and there was no way to manage that category of labor. And so we built one of the earliest SaaS platforms, cloud platform, for the word cloud was there to solve that problem. It took a number of years for people to accept that that was a real problem worth solving, but it turned out to be a very good problem to solve. And as you, you were there for that part of the journey, we recapitalized the company with Madison Dearborn in October of 2010, and of course, we had the total meltdown of the recession in 2008, so we can talk about that. And then sold to SAP in May of 2014, which was a very good outcome for all concerned. And what I've been doing since then is mostly board and advisory work, investing, some philanthropy, if that's of interest. So, uh, I, at the moment, I sit on seven company boards. They're mostly tech and software related, but there's a couple that are non-tech. I also chair one of the industry boards for Madison Dearborn Partners. We have five industry boards. So I help them vet deals. I'll sit on boards with them. I'll co-invest. So that's what I'm up to at the moment. Super. Maybe you can take us through your experiences when we went through the financial meltdown with Field Glass and kind of how you adjusted the strategy of the firm to respond to the current crisis at that time, back when we had the financial bubble in 2008 and 2009. So we had an interesting experience during that event. And as you know, it sort of crept up on us. We didn't know it was going to happen. There were some signs. And this was about the summer of 2008. And we were actually going through an interesting time because our main competitor, which was also backed by another private equity firm, as you know, had just been purchased. And it was you know, quite a large deal for that time. I think it was something over $140 million, uh, that had been uh, paid for it. And I guess some of the bidders that didn't make it came looking around because they liked the industry. And one of them, which is a, you know, a, a private equity firm, arm of a very well-known financial institution, put in an offer for us. As you will recall, we said yes rather quickly 
uh, you know, that was it. We celebrated, you know, we had our board dinners, etc. And then the meltdown started to kick in again. So the offer degraded. Uh, and so, you know, instead of keeping an eye on the business, we were completely expecting a, a sale at that stage. The offer degraded and eventually it was pulled from us. And so by about late August or you know, September of 2008, we were left with no offer and also tasked with getting back to examining the state of the business for the first time at that stage. And on the face of it, it was a horror show because the underlying industry that we were dependent on was the global staffing industry. And their top lines had fallen 40%. So the publicly traded staffing firms like Biodeco's, Kelly's, Manpower's, these were the bellwethers. We charged as a percentage of spend of staffing spend running through our system. When their top lines dropped 40%, my expectation was we were going to get crushed. But actually, something interesting happened. We didn't get crushed. In fact, what happened is our customers, which were large organizations, of course, immediately laid off tons of their contingent labor. But they had lots of contingent labor left that was not on our platform. And we had the we had sort of the opposite effect, and I want to talk about this a little bit, where these firms suddenly realized that they have enormous amounts of contingent labor that were being unmanaged. And they better get that under control. They look around and they see fit-for-purpose platforms like Fieldglass and others already existing. And so here's a statistic, if you, you, might, you might recall this actually. It had taken me seven years to close 40 deals, 40 large customers. In that eighth year, in the year of the recession, and in the half year below that, we closed after we closed 40 minutes. Talk about a hockey stick, right? And we, in a sense, we never looked back. You know, that was that was what happened with field glass. But it took us a while to figure out that those were the effects that were taking place. And you know, to to me, the the first thing I had to do was to see which of these different functions that we have, you know, product development, customer service, PS. We have an offshore crew, sales, marketing. Which engine do I need to keep you know, fed? We have all these engines. And my first instinct was sales are going to fall down. And so we better trim there and you know, live for another day. But they didn't fall down. And in fact, people were calling more and wanting to deploy more, et cetera. So we were one of those rare companies that actually saw very different picture emerged from that recession. We actually came out much stronger. When you looked at the situation, obviously there's a tremendous morale implication, right? When you go from celebrating with an offer and all of a sudden the offer gets reduced and then it gets pulled and then you're like, oh my God, what are we going to do now? How did you deal with your employees through that whole crisis? The hardest thing to deal with was my immediate executive team in the layer below that because those were people in the inner circle and they had all been with me for a while. It had been eight, eight plus years of just very hard work, quite a grind. And everyone was starting to think, okay, there might be some sort of a payday here. And then that was taken away. So then, and I knew all their families. So I sat with the families and explained to them. So what I said is, okay, we're going to give ourselves, you know, one evening here to commiserate and, and, and maybe, you know, invite one beer too many. Uh, but after that, we're getting back to work tomorrow. So let's, you know, Let's cry it out tonight, and then we're done. And that's what we did. That's what we did. And I, my takeaway from that is people don't mind hardships. They just don't want to be alone in them. And they want to know that there's a purpose and that there's a there's light at the end of the tunnel. 
and that we're all in it together. You know, people are tribal at the end of the day. And I think we came out of it as a stronger unit. Yes, yes. As a CEO, obviously, you had to get your team to kind of get it out of their system and then coalesce around the new vision or the new direction, right? Did you use that opportunity at all to bring more focus to play or to, to eliminate maybe some things that were being done that maybe weren't as important in the new situation? Yes, yes. So what I did is I, I had everybody go back and examine every part of their business from a cost structure standpoint, from is it possible to do something better? Uh, do you have too many people? I don't want to hear that you have too few people. I, I want to know that you have too many people. You know, the old adage, you know, more companies die of indigestion than of starvation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it was the H, one of the HP founders that said it. Originally. I always believe that. And most importantly, you know, where startups fall down is in the linkages between functions. It's PS thinks they're PS and product development thinks they're product development. The other guy is not doing a job and so on. So, we spent a lot of time examining the linkages between functions, and those usually take place in what information am I giving you? What are you giving me? Is it what you need? Are we having too few meetings? Are the right people in the meetings? So all those linkages were examined, and I made sure there was no sort of blame to go around. This was going to be everybody's problem. And we started experimenting with interesting methods that you know we'd learned along the way, and one of them was this technique called feed forward, you know, instead of feedback. So feedback tends to have like an inflammatory angle where, you know, if we're working together and things haven't gone well, I'm like, yeah, let me give you some feedback. <laughs> That's, this is, nobody wants to hear that. But a feed forward is this technique where you're literally saying, in order, like, like George, in order for me to do my job in the coming year, this is what I need from you. And then right then you turn around and have the exact same thing with me, Jay. For me to do my job, this is what I need from you. And we experimented with a few formats, and it actually happens very quickly. And people started to really enjoy doing that with different departments. And it can be done in you know, 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes, and it forces you to distill it. And it leverages the idea that people actually do want to work together. They want to be heard, and they want to hear. And so there were a lot of these little techniques that you know, I think helped us in that time. Can you share an example of one of the, the processes between functions that changed as a result of that, Jay? There was one that I wish I had something to do with this, but I'm actually really proud that I didn't because it came out from the group. So we had our customer service group, what we call the command center. So it's the group that receives the first calls from the customers saying, this isn't working, how do I do this? And the issues can get pretty involved because the application has you know, become complex and our cost codes and you've got to know the basics of accounting and procurement and finance and so on. So we found that the original customer service people we were hiring, they weren't good enough. They were telemarketing you know, types and they stayed for nine months and they went away. So one of the groups came up, and this was a problem. One of the groups came up and said, why don't we hire college grads, like freshly mid college grads? And on the face of it, this doesn't make any sense because these kids have biology degrees and you know, environmental science or whatever. But it actually was the most brilliant move we made. So we started bringing in these kids. And the only criteria we had is you should be curious. You should have a customer orientation and a service orientation and some problem-solving skills. And beyond that, we don't care what you've studied. And so we started bringing in these groups. And the promise to them was, you stay on this desk for nine months, learn the app, understand our customers. After that, you can go anywhere. We have a job opening in the company. So it actually became a feeder 
to QA, to product development, to legal, etc. And it actually became an internal recruiting pool. And those people had the intellect of college grads, right, instead of telemarketers. And so that's an example of a new program that came out of that those difficult times. As you went through that difficult time where, again, you, you thought that you had an offer and the whole world changed overnight and you're in the middle of the financial crisis with all the uncertainty, did you adjust expenses? And, and if you did, how did you determine where you did that across the, you know, the, the competing areas of the company, the engines, as you say? Yeah, so we did adjust expenses. And uh, my first objective was to make sure it was a collective problem and it didn't become a department problem. So you know, the compensation is one of the levers you have for, for this. We'd always sort of had this, but what I emphasize is that the way we're going to bonus and incentive the company is based on two numbers. And you, you might recall this, it was our, uh, our revenue and our EBITDA. Those were the two numbers. And we created a grid and we said, the bonus pools for everyone, including myself, is going to get funded at a certain level. And it's not even going to get funded below a certain level. So you know, I think it was like 85, below 85%. We're not funding anything, right? And if, if a dollar comes out of product development or PS, let's make sure it's coming out of the right place because at the end of the day, it's going to affect everyone. You know, that combined with just creating a culture of, you know, cooperation and, and teamwork and making sure we celebrate the collective win is what helped. And, you know, I think this is where... You can't create a company culture of these things overnight. So when the crisis hits, you better be ready, right? If you're, if you're not ready, then the cracks will show. When you went through that whole process and you kind of reset expectations, you reset strategy and, and aligned investment where it needed to be for the current times, did you have to go back and revisit that each quarter and kind of tune it at all? Or did you think you kind of nailed it the first pass and you were able to start executing out of it? It's completely iterative because you're, you know, in a sense, you're sort of feeling your way through this. You don't know how bad it'll get. Just like today, we, everyone's guessing how bad this would be, and it seems really, really bad. It was the same back then, if you remember. The bottom fell out, you know, the stock markets, you know, nobody's buying anything. So we really had to prepare scenarios where there was a nuclear winter coming. So there were a period of a few months. You know, my, the rosy picture I outlined didn't become evident to us still. You know, maybe six months later when we saw what was going on, there was, the quarters were too far away. This was like weekly discussions. And I, you know, cash becomes the life, cash is your blood. Right? So cash flow became something me and my CFO and the controller, we kept a very close eye on collections because customers are trying to stretch you out too. We had one Fortune 500 customer who said, we're shifting from 90 days, which was bad enough, to 120 days. And we're like, what is this? This is, we're not your bank, right? So, but what are you going to do? So it was a weak thing. I think uh, and oftentimes small companies in, in times of the crisis, cash is king for them, but cash is king for their clients also, right? In these times of uncertainty. And so... You know, I, there, I remember in the beginning, that was one of the headlines in the Wall Street Journal was cash is king. And actually, a few weeks, three or four weeks before that, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that talked about key success factors for CEOs and adaptability was one of the key ones, right? In times like this, the ability to be adaptable, not just for your business, but also your customer's business is pretty important, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely. That's a very good point. In fact, what the customer is looking for is for you to be thoughtful and helpful to them, which is how you embed yourself even further in the business when things get good. And for us, I, and again, it actually really helped that we had a customer 
service orientation because we would we would be able to say, look, you're spending you know a billion or two billion dollars on these workers. If you don't have them on the system, which is an item of our self-interest, then you don't even know where to cut. You can't. I, I want to give you a scalpel instead of a sledgehammer, and that's an item for their interest. So there was mutual self-interest, and we cut them breaks and. You know, the costs of offering deployment, uh, which they appreciated, and then we went on the back end because we get paid. So you're exactly right about that. This has to be seen as uh, you you help yourself by helping the customer first, uh, and, and then you get the right. And I think we really benefited because there was one, I think it was Bank of America, I can, I can say that now, they moved us up into the tier one category of suppliers saying you are essential to our business because we're running you know huge amounts of spend and that felt really good for a minute and then we realized that it comes with about 45 new constraints <laughs> yeah i remember when when the best day of my life was being ge's key vendor and then the worst day of my life was being ge's key vendor right <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's when they say we want you to be our lights your lights on customer that's all we're going to do for us keep the lights on yeah, you know, what was really unique about that for Field Glass, because I was there for the ride with him, as you said, you were adaptable, you adjusted for the times, you realigned your spend appropriately, your team came along and was part of the whole alignment process and everything. And you, you came out of that in something I believe is really critical is that you actually came out of it stronger than when you went in. More focus, more purpose better execution. And you came out of that just prepared to run the table against your competition. And that's a thought process that I think all CEOs in the middle of this chaos need to be determining. How do we make the company stronger coming out of this than we were going in? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So let me talk first about the benefit of actually coming out stronger. When things clear, you realize that the game board has completely changed. People were strong you know, looked strong earlier, not anymore. The weaker ones are gone. And we became so profitable. We were, there were times we were 35, 38% EBITDA margins, lots of cash in the bank, no debt. That's a good position to be. And there would be deals that would come along then that were just horrible pricing. And I would tell my head of sales then, Rob Brickman, who you know well, I said, we're going to take this deal because we can. And because... I want to take away oxygen from the competitor. We want to demoralize them. You know, we have a foot on their throat, metaphorically, so to say, let's not take it off. Let's squeeze a little harder because we can. Right? And it's from having, you know, fought those battles and come out stronger at the other end. You know, it's a great benefit of actually of doing this. And how you actually do it, I think you have to, there, there can be no sacred cows in what needs to change about the business. You have to cut. If you have to cut, you cut deep. If you have to think about, uh, you know, a zero-based budgeting point of view, then you do it. Because look, every department's got to make a case for its funding for this year. And you know, you change plans. So maybe we we're planning a big re-architect of the thing of the system. Maybe we push that off because the customers now need you know new capabilities. So everything has to be sort of on a war uh, footing. And honestly, in hindsight, I can tell you. It, it can be an exciting, energizing time. And I'm finding that with the boards I'm on, which is as bad as it is, the good teams have actually coalesced and come together. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I was I've always been a fan of zero-based budgeting. I think startups can benefit that and relook at their business every year because everything changes, right? Your competition changes, your product line, your customer, everything changes, right? That's a, a great transition into kind of how you're working with the CEOs of your companies today and how you're helping them through something that they've never been through before, right? This one we didn't ease into, right? <laughs> it just showed up at the front door and ugly. Ugly and and much worse than that recession because we knew financial recession. You know, we've seen a few of them before. This nobody has seen before. On the boards I'm on, there's two categories of companies. One that is, there are two logistics software companies. And as you can imagine, they are actually in the long term going to benefit. In the short run, no, because there's no new sales taking place. But the customer usage of logistics software to track where things are, etc., is absolutely you know, exploding. So we have a bit of a squeeze here, which is exploding usage and therefore costs, but not new revenue coming in, you know, in many of these. So in that group of companies, we have to say, look, there is sunshine at the end of this. You can see it in, in the customer's need for your tool, but you know, we have cash issues. So the first thing you've got to do is if you've got credit lines and things available to you that are reasonable, draw them all down and put the cash in your bank before they get taken away you know, from you. The second is, let's take a look at all our covenants that we've got yet. And, you know, I have the benefit of a very sophisticated private equity fund medicine Dearborn on at least two of these. Uh, let's look at all our covenants and make sure we don't accidentally trip them. The third, this is the time to relook at your headcount. And, you know, this sounds harsh, but you've got to let a set of people go that are not strong performers that maybe you were holding on to because you could. Those are difficult conversations, but they have to be done. Good thing is that uh, there are you know, government safety nets now you know, for people who are being let go and it's, it's not new. And so there's a series of, it's the same with product development. We might've been you know, spending millions of dollars on some aspirational product. Let's take a look at that, if that's still needed. And you know, that's how it goes. I, the, the biggest thing for the CEOs is to help them get to a place that they never, can't even imagine in their nightmares, like a scenario like say our hometown company here, United Airlines, has lost 97% of its business. Who ever plans for that kind of black, or the blackest of black swans? And so the main thing I've done is to say, you know, when they come back with scenarios, they'll have three scenarios. And it'll be like, the, the worst one won't even be anywhere near what I think it should be the worst one. So you have to drag some of them to a point where they're like, I said, if you're not a super, super uncomfortable with that scenario, then it should not be scenario three. Then it belongs somewhere else. Then, of course, there are the other class of companies that are, uh, their products are not necessary in this environment, as important as we think we are. And I think there you just have to, you know, you just have to quickly cut as deep as you can to ensure that this company survives. Right. And do your best to cut deeper than you think so you don't need to cut again and again, right? That's right, protecting your customer base. Also, you know, so many expenses, we're going to, the world's going to be different. People wonder, why are we flying around all the time anyway, you know, when you can do a Zoom call just like this one? So let's start doing those things now. Like if you haven't, if you haven't put an offshore plan in place, maybe now it's possible to do, but why didn't you do it earlier? So it's a chance to sort of fire up the creativity of all your employees, like we did in the field last thing. See what ideas are resident with them. For a lot of CEOs, they still think that their core group is the one that's responsible for generating all that. No, it's the whole company. 
And that may mean, frankly, you remove sales and marketing pretty much and also inefficient errors within product, but you focus on just keeping the product alive and keeping protecting your customer base. That's, that's right. And I've gone through this myself. You know, what happens is when you start a company, you have a conception of a problem and then you build a product and a service offering around that problem. Problems have a nasty way of shifting on you when you're not looking. And so, you know, buggy whips go away and this happens and that happens. And the problem in software, as you know, you know, better than me, is that product's invisible, the problem's invisible. You have to have sort of a conception of it. And when a crisis happens is when I think the problem shifts the most for customers. Like if you look at the carnage around us, people aren't worrying about the same things they were in January, your customer. And since their problem has shifted, has your product shifted? So you're exactly right. First discussion you have is we should assume we've become much less relevant to them in most cases. And how do we become more relevant to them? So that's, again, a... That's a difficult sacred cow conversation because people are so tied into you know what was built over years. I think that's the first tough conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I wanted to bring up a comment you made to our CEO forum years ago, and it was a very nuanced comment about product. And you were up on the stage with me, and we were talking. You said, "You know what? Your product should be nothing but the perfect shadow of what your customers need. Number one, but also what they will pay you for. Number two, and everything else." is extraneous and a waste of capital and people. And, and this is a perfect time for people to look at that and say, you know what, what are we doing that they, number one, they may need, but they're not going to pay for. It. So as you work with your CEOs and stuff around scenarios and things like that, obviously it probably entails a tremendous amount of continued discussion and iteration as they come to the place they need to be to kind of lead their companies. Is that what's happening? It's what's happening. So the main manifestation is the board engagement has really intensified in most cases. And so when the companies are in a little bit of a trouble, a little bit of trouble, you know, we used to have quarterly board meetings and then calls in the middle. Now we are having up to three phone calls a week with some of these companies. And in one case, there's a CEO change happening because for health issue, just completely bad timing. So that's interesting, trying to do a CEO search in this environment where you got to meet the person. This is where the board earns its jobs, right? They have to really step in, get to know the farm at a level they never thought they would need to know. I think in a sense, they need to become part of the management team, almost like an extension of the management team. My eyes are sort of buggy from these Zoom calls. What are you doing as far as counseling? You know, as, as you said, cash is king. If you have bank lines, get the cash in the door before the bank can take the umbrella away because they see rain on the forecast, right? Or you're counseling them on, look, you need to have, you should have cash for two years or things like that to make sure you can get through this. What's, what's the current counseling around cash and capital? And I think having cash for a year, but the, you know, as soon as we say that, it's like under what scenario? So there are scenarios in which there is no way you're going to have cash for a year other than through an equity infusion and in many cases, that's available, and in some cases, it's not available. Even if it is, it's going to be super expensive, as you know, to, for them to raise equity. So it's really, at some point, you leave it to them to say, think about your worst-case scenario and make sure you can survive for a year. Because in a year, you know, that's far enough away that something can happen. There's also the, the health and well-being of employees. You know, So make sure your HR department is strengthened. There are helplines set up. Step up the surveys of your employees. So we've like really set up the pulse surveys. You know, there's so much anxiety. Am I next? And am I going to get sick? And we say 
every COVID case that is that shows up, we need to know. We don't need to know the name, but we need to know it's there, what's happening. We make sure the employee is taken taken you know, care of. It's a swath of economic and also, you know, just humanitarian related helpfulness. You took your team with you through that whole journey and, and success out the back end. And you did that through communication and, and transparency and empathy and everything else. How are you coaching the CEOs on what the right rhythms are for communication with the employees and how to communicate with the employees? How are you doing that as, as a board member? So, so for me personally, being an independent, I have, and having been an entrepreneur, I have good trusting relationships with this, the CEOs. And I do plenty of off-the-record you know, counseling with the CEO that is not a board. And my first job, I think, has become to make sure the health of the mental health of the CEO, you know, is where it needs to be. And I tell them, look, you know, travel airline analogy, put on your oxygen mask first. Make sure you're in good shape. Otherwise, you if your batteries are not recharged, you are not going to recharge anyone else. You and your team, you know, attend to your health. I think the second is they all have some formats by which they communicate. The introverted ones prefer emails, the others do town halls, like whatever way you were communicating, step that up a little bit. Open yourself up to more, you know, Q&A, do guided Q&A. You should never have the employees feel like they're not receiving enough information. I'm a believer in transparency, so be very, very transparent. You don't have to share every last number with everyone, but you've got to be transparent that we're in a bind, everybody's in a bind. Those are the types of things. I'll help them evaluate individual executives. If I've been exposed to them, I will have a point of view on the executives, and I think if there's weakness or someone isn't coming up, then we should make a change. In times like this, is an opportunity to actually strengthen your team selectively? Absolutely. It's a time to cut, prune. There is talent in the marketplace because you have to be careful because everybody's cutting what what might be what they consider their weak employees, but there are good companies that are not going to make it, and there'll be good talent in there. The other counterintuitive things that happened is everybody's real happy to have a job if they have a job. So there's really sort of been an increase in you know gratitude among the existing employees. There's nobody shopping for jobs, you know, for the most part if they have a decent job at the moment. So there's an energy you can harness and just sort of bind people closer together. But I will absolutely counsel that this is the time. You know, you don't want to waste a good crisis, as they say. We know in some companies, entitlement creeps in a little bit and, and things. This is a great time for a CEO to kind of put that and bury it forever, right? That's right. That's right. It's a good time to bury it forever. There are two types of CEOs. There are founder CEOs, and then there are people who came in as professional managers. I think this in this environment, in many ways, some of the founder CEOs tend to do better because they are going to stay with that ship. It's their baby. And... But they have a different set of issues. They they are almost overly passionate. They get sort of very emotional. So you have to, in fact, make them sort of a little bit more cold-blooded about the sets of issues, whereas the ones who came in as professionals tend to be fairly objective about it already. But many of them are actually starting to think about their next, you know, in some cases, their next job and so on. So the counseling varies based on the CEO's mindset. And... The overall objective is, look, we're going to be judged by how we steer this ship collectively through this crisis. We don't know where it ends, but this is, this is what's going to separate the men from the boys and the women from the girls. And so let's make sure we can look back on this time and say, we serve this company well. It is about the company. It's not about any of us. I mean, the, the company is this marvelous construct that's been created as a, 
as an entity that is outside all of us. The only reason we're all together here is to keep that entity you know, healthy and alive. And so let's focus on that. So it's in a sense, it's sort of focusing them on the North Star of what is right for the, you know, the company that we're trying to build. And this was a time for CEOs to step up and lead and do it every day in a real transparent manner to bring their teams along with them so their company survive and come out of this stronger than what they went in at. The idea of shared sacrifice. And for instance, nobody likes to take pay cuts, but we're going to have to take pay cuts along with layoffs, right? Some of the boards I'm on have recommended that board fees be cut alongside that. And I'm fully supportive of you know, any of those. If we're either in it together or not in it together. And so let's send a powerful message. The CEO should absolutely take a pay cut, maybe a greater pay cut. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think a lot of that makes sense is that the executive team should take a deeper pay cut than other people in the company as again, look, we're going to lead the way we're going to lead you out of this and we're going to take on more pain than, than the rest of you, but we all got to take on shared pain to come out of this with, as a, as a company with everything in place for the future. Yeah, those, are, those are the lessons where people who haven't seen it before don't realize that crises aren't always bad things. No, no. There are silver linings. Well, when you've been through them, like you and yeah. I have, this is like a fifth crisis in my business career, right? And when you've been through these crises and stuff, you kind of understand that there's a real opportunity to kind of reset the table and take a bigger piece of the, the pie when you get out. So yeah. thanks so much, Jay, for taking the time. Thank you, George. Everything and and uh, we appreciate all your insight. It's great to hear all the, the wonderful guidance you're giving these CEOs. You're, you're welcome. You're in the unique position of being able to cross-check most of my stories <laughs> when it comes to field lots. And, so, and remember, we have a December dinner date, right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to Building to Last, a short podcast series hosted by OpenView Venture Partners. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Build for more insights on product-led growth. And if you're building a B2B SaaS company and would like to talk strategy or fundraising, OpenView can help please reach out via email to hello at ov.vc. Take care, everyone.